sure that people don't feel like I'm just waiting to speak or waiting to tell them the answer, that I actually care about what they have to say. Um, and I can't just, you know, take the hill. It's like, all right, let's talk about it. You know? Thank you so much for tuning in to Journey with Christian D. Evans Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Christian D. Evans. And guys, we have a very special guest on today. This man has led over 40 angel investments and deployed over $60 million across 14 companies as a venture capitalist. He is also co-founder and managing partner at Texaco Ventures, where he focuses on tech-enabled health services. And he is the sole founder and managing partner at Incredible Venture, where he focuses on companies leveraging blockchain technology. He is currently the chief operating officer at Fundware, which is a technology company based in Austin, Texas, developing mobile and data solutions for major brands and launching a unique cryptocurrency called Fun. Coin. He was recently a six years active duty and deployed twice and as the captain in the United States Army. Please welcome my next guest, the one and only Randall Crowder. How are you doing today, Randall? <laughs> I'm doing well, Christian. I appreciate you having me on. Man, I'm excited about diving into this because one of the things that I found so interesting about your uh, your background, of course, is the military, and you were deployed numerous times. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about this, how this has facilitated the foundation of maybe of your character, maybe your work, maybe your skills, into the new ventures that you have now and how that has been effective uh, in your, your approach into Funware as well as the venture capital world. Um, what, what were things that you learned during that time in the military, uh, skills, acquisition, um, you know, just character itself that has helped you become the man that you are now, Randall? Yeah, man, it's a great question. Um, you know, Probably first and foremost, the universe, you know, pardon my French, doesn't give a shit about your plans, uh, doesn't care about your journey, doesn't care about what you're trying to learn. The universe is going to smack you in the face and, and it's going to, that's going to be the best lesson you ever learn um, is how to adapt and, and how to really take, you know, ambiguous situations and make something of them. And I say all that to say that I am not brave. Um, at least I wasn't then. I hope I'm more brave now. Um, I was not, you know, some you know, flag-carrying patriot with a lineage of people in my life that had, you know, kind of led me to service. Um, and I'm, I'm older than I look. I shaved my head because, you know, the gray hairs are coming in. Um, I, w I got in in the 90s. So it was 98 when I went to West Point uh, for undergrad. At that time, for those of you that don't remember, which is very sad, I'm getting old, um, that time Rumsfeld was downsizing the Army. Um, there was, it was peacetime. Everybody was happy. Everybody was making millions in the dot-com boom. And I was like, well, you know, my parents, I never came from money. My parents weren't wealthy. Um, and they had tried to save a little bit to help me with college. And I ended up realizing I could get into a military academy and that would be free college. And I could, you know, kind of give back to my parents who were just amazing human beings. Uh, and I didn't really think I'd get in. So I was kind of like doing it out of this, like, well, I'll at least try. And then if I don't get in, I'll just go to UT and, and have a blast. I was already accepted to UT. And lo and behold, I got in. And so I was like, well, damn, I, was like, I guess I got to go because I don't I don't ever turn down a challenge because that's just something in me um, that if somebody else can do it, I can do it. But so I got in, I went and it was actually my senior year uh, when the towers fell. So I remember going into my class on 9-11, um, first class of the morning after everybody's kind of just shell shocked about what just happened. And it couldn't have planned this any better if it was a movie. You know, we had this colonel. Um, Fulberg Colonel jumped into Grenada, you know, iron jaw, gravelly voice, you know, ripped out of a comic book. And he kind of looks around and he's like, 
well, cadets, you're all going to war. And it was like, oof, okay, yeah, that not what I not what I expected, not what I planned on. Um, at the time when I joined West Point, you know, when I, when I got accepted, people were getting paid like a hundred grand just to give up their service. Uh, and that was not going to happen. You know, we knew immediately in that moment that we were going to spend most of our time probably overseas um, doing inherently dangerous things. And that yeah, teaches you a lot, you know, if, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a parent, you know, whether you're just, you know, in, in big business, you know, every time you think you have a plan and you think you're going to do something a certain way, something always goes wrong. Um, and you have to understand that you have the capability to adapt to that situation. Uh, you have to have the you know, kind of intestinal fortitude to persevere, persevere through that situation. Um, and, and really the, the gratitude to accept that you're just being, you know, presented with opportunities to grow stronger. You know, there, there's an old, I'm not a religious person, I'm a spiritual person, as kind of anecdotally people say. Um, and we can talk about that. There's nothing off limits. I'll talk about anything, uh, which drives my lawyers crazy. Um, but, you know, I think there's something that says, you know, if you, you know, you ask for strength, you know, God's not going to give you strength. You know, God's going to give you opportunities to be strong. And so, you know, that's what I learned in the military. And then, you know, a small, you know, sub bullet to that is it's amazing where that strength comes from. You know, I went over with a bunch of 18, 19 year old kids and, and they were the ones who were the tip of the spear. You know, we were a kinetic unit. Um, you know, we suffered some of the, the most casualties, you know, in kind of 03 uh, and again in 05 um, that any unit had ever suffered. We were in and around Fallujah and in and around Bakuba the second time. Um, and there was a lot of lot of fighting, a lot of a lot of people getting hurt. Um, but you had to push all of the command and control down to the smallest unit. You know, we weren't fighting Russia or China with these massive tank formations, which is all we were trained to do. Um, now all of a sudden you're fighting kind of this urban environment, which is very asymmetric and very confusing. And you know who's an enemy, who's not. Um, and you couldn't command and control that from a general, you know, inside the wire, you know, miles away or even maybe a different continent away. Um, you had to really trust your smallest unit, you know, leaders, and that's squad level. So you've got, you know, corporals, sergeants, and I say that by design, not officers. You know, NCOs enlisted are, are absolutely the tip of the spear in, in our military fighting force, and they're amazing human beings, and a lot of them have a high school education. Um, they grew up in the military. And, you know, I went from watching kids talk about going to the strip club to going and sitting down with tribal leaders and, and negotiating ceasefires. And it's an incredible reminder that just because you've got some degree or, you know, mommy and daddy, you know, left you a trust fund, that doesn't make you great. You know, it's, it's what you do with the opportunities around you that will expose greatness. Um, and I saw, you know, some kids from Arkansas who would probably get passed over 10 times over um, in job interviews do incredible things. And so it's a constant reminder uh, that not only should you be always ready to adapt and overcome, uh, but always be aware that talent is everywhere. And, and it's up to real leaders to figure out, you know, where that talent is and how to best use it. Well, what's interesting is, like you mentioned, how 
that plan. You had a plan. You had a thing that was going on a journey, and then obviously there was this chaos that uh, you know ensued. Uh, you didn't plan on that, mm-hmm. and then you just had to roll with the punches. And I find that actually a very interesting contextual situation in regards to how the unit was deployed. It wasn't, you know, the, 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 the colonels. It wasn't the generals. It was all the way down to that, you know, individual that just came out of high school that is that enlisted individual that's like, oh, wow, and you've got to have a lot of responsibility. Randall, I'm curious because when you're in these deployment situations, there are things like you mentioned, this chaos, this uncertainty. And that's very similar to business, right? And I love to see how you were effectively applied that no. same mindset. Maybe the things that you learned in regards to the mindset or the way you're able to adjust behavior or the expectations. And so that doesn't create the anxiety, the stress, the difficulty that it says, hey, you know what? Okay, cool. This happened. And really controlling the emotion and still driving forward and accomplishing the mission over in, in, in Iraq to the same structure in regards to business and say, hey, you know what? This client that was you know, bringing $100,000 a month in, all of us sudden pulled out for whatever reason. How can we pivot? What can we do? What's our strategy instead of getting bent out of shape? I'd love to, for you to maybe share a little bit of some stories or situations that happened in the business world that you learned because of, of uh, the, uh, the military experience. Yeah, you know, almost all of them. You know, I think the good thing about, you know, podcasts like this, and thank you for, for your service, you know, doing this kind of stuff is so important to people because, you know, when you're able to be vulnerable and talk about the mistakes you've made, you realize that you're not alone. Um, you know, and you hear somebody else talk about like, man, I almost went bankrupt or I lost that customer or I did this thing or chaos ensued. You realize that the chaos in your life is not unique. Everybody's experiencing it. You know, everybody got screwed over by a business partner. Everybody lost a key customer. Everybody's faced a lawsuit, you know, on the, on, for females. A lot of people have miscarriages. It's not, you know, an indictment of your womanhood. You know, it happens to a lot of women, but a lot of women live in a bubble and they think, oh my gosh, like I can't have a child. And it's a very visceral reaction that men will never understand. Um, and, and it's, it, but when you start, when women start talking, they realize they're not alone. And I think that's very important. Um, so, you know, I have made my fair share of mistakes, <laughs> a lot of mistakes. Uh, and I hope I've learned from them. I probably haven't learned from all of them. Um, but you know, some of the things I did learn that I've applied to answer your question, you know, one of, I, I got my start with something that I learned from military. So, um, leading with value and leading through example are things that are just instilled in you in the military. People are always watching. You're always around your shoulders. Every little thing you do, they're watching. You know, there's, there's pictures of me floating around funware, like taking out the trash and like there's a, somebody had posted it like, you know, here's our COO part-time janitor and I and it wasn't it wasn't like a dig it was it was you know that's what I do I I, I, I'm not going to ask anybody to do something that I wouldn't do and if I see that something needs to be done I'm going to do it I'm not better than an engineer you know I just have a different title and so if the trash needs to be taken out I'll take it out like I'm not going to go who's going to take this trash out other people will say well that's not a good use of your time that they're managers they're not leaders you know People that you lead want to see that you're human, that you're approachable, uh, and that you don't see yourself better than them, even though you may be in roles that have more responsibility or you may have a greater impact per hour of your time. That doesn't mean that you're better. Um, And so I like to humanize myself, uh, but I don't think about it. It's not like a gimmick. You know, I just see things that need to be done and I do them. Um, And I think that that's representative of real leadership. Uh, but with that, 
I look for ways to add value. And so when I first got out of the military, one of my first um, kind of forays into angel investing was actually working with a gentleman here in town named Admiral Inman, former deputy director of the CIA, um, you know, spent a, a lifetime in service, got out, got into venture, um, ended up investing in both Dell and Oracle, and so became a startup investor. Um, two great wins there. I just wanted to be a fly on the wall. I was going to get my MBA at UT. I was like, hey, listen, you know, I want to learn this game. Um, what can I do? You know, I, and he's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have any. You know, it's not really something you can get, you know, hired to do, especially as a trigger puller. Like, what am I going to do in venture? I don't know anything about it. But I, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I didn't know um, exactly any. I didn't have anything I was real passionate about. So I was like, well, I don't have anything to start to go all in on. Let me learn the other side of the table. Let me learn about the investment world so that when I become an entrepreneur, I can understand how to engage with investors better. Um, so I kind of networked into this gentleman, Admiral Inman, um, ended up you know, kind of saying, hey, look, let me just be a fly on the wall, convincing him to let me just attend meetings. He's like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, so you know, I'm attending these meetings. I think in his mind, he's thinking like he's doing me a favor. I'm an intern. Well, I had gone to this really incredible resource that people seem to forget about. It's called the internet and, and it's called Google. And I had Googled, like, you know, how to prepare for pitch meetings, you know, how to evaluate startups, how to, you know, what are the key things investors look at. And, you know, lo and behold, there's a lot of really good information out there when you look. And so I created what in the Army we call a standard operating procedure. So, like, all of these kind of, you know, how do you do certain things in the Army, it is all described in very, very explicit detail. Uh, and so I built one kind of for him. And so, I was, and I didn't tell him I was doing it. I just started do, I started taking these notes during these meetings because they had entrepreneurs coming in, coming in. And I ended up building these frameworks for all of these companies. Like what's their market size? What's their revenue? What's their threats? Doing SWOT analysis. And I had never been taught that. I just learned it on Google. But I created an easy, organizable framework to give them. So I, I did this for like a month. And then, you know, and VCs, you know, if you ever pitch a VC, they don't pay attention and they don't take notes. So they're half the time they're on their phone and they're just like, doo -doo 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 -doo, and you're just talking. So I knew they weren't taking notes. So I took notes for them. So at the end of the month, I gave them basically a binder of all the pitches they had heard. And they were like, what is this? And I was like, this is, you know, this is a month in review of all the companies you've seen. They were like, this is incredible. Like they've never done it before. Um, but that's what we do in the military. So I kind of applied that and that got me in the door and they were like, why don't you keep doing this for us? Like, why don't you keep, you know, now you've kind of led with value. Now you're not just here us doing you a favor. You're doing us a favor. You know, why don't you stick around? And so that led to a lot of other things. I did the same thing for the angel network that I took over, uh, Central Texas Angel Network. I built a playbook for how to run an angel network. That's how I got the job to run the network as the executive director. And so I've always led with the idea that someone's watching, um, try to add value, be you know a force multiplier, um, and and try to you know give just as much as you receive, and it's always paid off. And is that unexpected value? And you weren't going out there and just talking about how I'm going to bring you all this stuff and do all this stuff and do the SOPs. You just went out there quietly, humbly, and did it. And then at the end, unexpected value, and it was very, very um, uh, remarkable in regards to the response. And that's how you're able to just, you know, you know, find your way into these these ecosystems, which is really incredible. Randall, I want to ask you a little bit in regards to you you. You, you mentioned here humility is, is a very big uh, aspect, right, in regards to even like what you do at Fundware where you took the, you know, uh, you, 
you played a position, COO, but also you went out there and took the trash out because you're no better than you just have a, a, maybe a different position. Um, I'm just curious, Randall, have you always had that approach to leadership? Or was that an uh, evolving journey for yourself? You were at some point arrogant, prideful in leadership, and that was your approach. And then there was something that was a pivot point that helped you become, obviously, that more humble, uh, approachable leader. Or was there was there no pivot point? That's a great question. Um, again, I will, I will commend my parents. I think probably more leaning towards the latter. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a Leo. Um, I'm not much of an astrology person, but I do recognize what people think of Leos. Um, but I temper it with someone told me I'm a Virgo rising. So I think I'm, I'm more of an, I'm more empathetic, but I'm a hundred percent like, you know, super brash, like ENTJ, Leo, like let's go take the hill. Um, but my, my parents are, are amazing. I don't have a, a broken childhood in any way. They, they always, loved me and supported me and, and gave me every opportunity, uh, but didn't micromanage me, which I think allowed me to kind of find my own, my own way. Um, but my mom used to always say, you know, if you have a choice between being right and being kind, just be kind. Um, I, to your point, I didn't always kind of subscribe to that. I'm a very righteous person. So I'm the guy that will bully the bully. I'm the guy that will lawyer, and I don't say that as a good thing. Like I'm very, my my wife tells me I have a hero complex. She's like, don't get involved, stop. And so like you know, I'm I'm very much like if I see a wrong, like I can't compute it, um, and and that that that's very harmful sometimes. Like you know, so in my relationship with my wife, I would be very righteous and want to lawyer everything, and like you know, she would say something, and I'm like, well, see here. At 3.15, you actually said this, and it was just, like, nonstop. And I have, like, zero quit. Like, I can operate on no sleep, and I can keep going, and I'm stubborn as hell, and it's just, it's a lot. And so I, I commend her for even dealing with me um, because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a very powerful personality. Um, and that can be not, I'm not, it's, I don't apply it in a very, like, aggressive, arrogant manner. But that approach can like suck the air out of a room. And so, you know, through a few relationships I've had over time, you know, just shutting up has <laughs> been, been kind of my personal journey and letting the room breathe and making sure everybody has space to talk. Even if they're going to do something differently or say something differently to me, that's okay. I don't have to, I don't have to be right. Let's just get it right. Um, and that's really helped both professionally and personally. Um, just really making sure I'm not taking over the conversation because uh, i got no problem stepping up and making a decision, but sometimes it's not yet time to make a decision. Let's really talk this through and make sure that people don't feel like I'm just waiting to speak or waiting to tell them the answer that I actually care about what they have to say. Um, and I can't just, you know, take the hill. It's like, all right, let's talk about it. You know, no one's shooting at us. So let's really kind of explore this. And it's actually, I can credit Admiral Inman um, again. You know, he told me one thing early on. I was probably early 20s. Um, you know, he said, look, one of the hardest things you're going to have to learn to do is delegate. Because if you're a type A personality um, and you're an alpha, and everybody on the podcast trip thinks they're an alpha, a lot of them are not. But if you are a true leader, the hardest thing you'll ever have to do is figure out how to let other people do things that you could maybe do better than them. 
And he's like, and, he, and the way to think about it is just because you can get an A on something doesn't mean you shouldn't let somebody else get an A minus so that you can go get an A plus doing something that has more value than the thing you were doing that you would have gotten an A at. And I was like, oh, God, yes, I, I know that's inherently right, but it's so hard. Like, it's like you want to look over their shoulder and be like, no, 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 no don't, don't, don't do it. But you just got to let them do it and let them, you know, sometimes even worse, they're going to fail at it. Something that you know you could do, they're going to fail. Like, you want your kid to be a, a basketball star. You can't go out there and just start showing off and showing shots and be like, look at my, look at my shot. Look how good I am at this. Look and never let your kid throw the ball, you know, grab the ball. Like they're never going to learn. And so, you know, you really got to learn that um, as a leader to really set the stage for growth, set the stage for learning, um, and then be okay when that maybe maturates at a different, you know, rate than for you or just differently or the end result is different than what you would have done. And I'm still working on that. Well, it's interesting that you have identified that as one of the behaviors that you would like to or you're consistently working on. And it's really cool that you are humble enough to be able to see that in yourself and you're obviously identified that. Um, I, I've talked to a lot of individuals where they would rather have be right than build that relationship. And I've seen some where they've really worked that around where it's yeah. like, hey, I'm okay with being wrong or you know, assuming that I'm wrong just to build a relationship so that they obviously we can facilitate this long term. It's like short term versus long term you know, thought process, and it's seeing the whole picture uh, overall. So with that being said, Randall, and I appreciate you kind of diving into this, and, and let's just unpack this a little bit further. Who helped you identify that? Do you have some mentors? Did you have maybe your wife that kind of slapped you upside the head and said, honey, let's not do this, right? Or did you have um, – and whoever helped you, what boundaries and systems are you putting in place to ensure that you don't fall back into that behavior? Uh, what disciplines are you putting in place to ensure that you are seeing that long-term relational aspect and seeing that delegation aspect, even though sometimes, like you mentioned, uh, it, you know, it, there's this, this, this tendency to fall back into – um, you know, taking control because obviously you, 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 you want to, and you're probably better at it. However, though, you're thinking long-term. So, uh, I'd love to uh, unpack both of those questions. Yeah, I, I'm going to, well, I'm going to say something that, you know, probably make, it might make people uncomfortable if they really think about it. Um, you know, there's a quote, I heard Les Brown say it, but I think he said, stole it from somebody else, but it's, no one ever changes until the pain of remaining the same outweighs the pain of change. And, you know, I like that quote because me and my wife were just talking about this last night. Actually, yeah, last night um, about cheating. And, you know, you'll see some women like talk about like, well, like, or men, you know, like, well, they, they cheated before, so they're going to cheat on you. Well, not, not if you're worth it. People cheat on people they're not afraid to lose. People stop cheating when they don't want to even potentially risk losing somebody. And people will go, well, no, I just got drunk or I just made a mistake. It's like, that's fine. But like, you weren't there. You weren't there mentally with, I cannot risk losing this person. Like, I would never cheat on my wife, ever, ever. It wouldn't even cross my mind. Have I cheated in the past? Yeah. But I found somebody who it is fundamentally at an atomic level, I cannot risk her not being in my life. I cannot risk not having 
you know, not being able to raise my child with her together. I will never do it. Now, you know, if she decides she doesn't want to be with me one day and we break up, it will be because of relationship issues. It won't be because of something so visceral that I've done. I say that because it's true for, you know, nobody ever came to me and said, hey, listen, let me let me break this down. Your personality is kind of jacked up and you need to do this and you need to create more space and you need to listen. I started changing when I realized my behavior was hurting people that I didn't want to hurt. And so I realized like with her, by like, I was acting a certain way that was causing her to act a certain way. And when I stopped acting a certain way, she stopped acting a certain way. So it was like, oh, cool. Like if I'm not like an overbearing, you know, asshole, you won't, you know, respond so bitchy. Cool. Awesome. I can do that. Um, you know, and so I, I see that even in, in, in business settings where it's like, you know, you can, if you, if you actually pay attention to people. And you actually, like, and if I'm talking and I'm, and I'm just, like, you know, banging things out and then, like, one of my engineers who I do not want to lose is kind of checked out and I'm like, oh, shit, they don't feel heard. They don't feel like they have a seat at this table and, like, they're, quite frankly, they're more important than I am. I need to shut up and, like, you know, hey, you know, engineer, what do you think? All right, let me tell you what I think and I think differently than you. It's like, oh, shit, I'm glad I created space for you to speak. Um, I want you to feel like you have a, a seat at the table because I don't want to lose you. I don't want to have to recruit somebody to replace you. Um, so I think people, you can, it's like, it's religion, you know, you can't convince someone. I mean, people try, Lord knows. Um, but I don't think you can intrinsically convince someone or beat someone down to believe something that they don't instinctually believe already. They might say they do, but I don't think it's real. And I think it's, it's easily cancelable. People come to realizations in an accountable way. They come to realizations because that's what they now choose to believe in. You know, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a business, whether it's a religion, whether it's a habit. You, just, you can't berate someone into it. Like, come on, come on, do it, do it, do it. Like, it's like that, that that's, human beings don't respond to that. You have to put a bunch of stimulus in your life and you put a bunch of variables in your life and then you take all of that and you synthesize it and then you choose to be the version of you that fits for the moment. And when enough stimulus kind of comes into your life where you're like, I don't like the way I'm treating people and I don't like how it's affecting them, you change. And so... It was less somebody coming and telling me to change and more me seeing how my behavior was affecting those I cared about, um, whether it was personal or business, and then realizing I could be better and they would be better and more importantly, they would be happier. Well, what I find so interesting is the, the importance of humility in that aspect because you're bringing in data. And let's be honest, with that data, that behavior, this, you know, people saying certain things, or maybe you becoming aware of these behaviors you're not really proud of, it's tough to really swallow, if you will, right? It's, it's easier said than done. And so that's why I think it's, it's, it's really important to just, you know, footstop on that. That's very impressive. Uh, and for those that are listening to this, it's, it's really cool to see Randall yourself where you're like, oh, you also saw that correlation when you were having this 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 negative behavior that would be directly correlated to this other negative behavior mm -hmm. that would obviously uh, you know facilitate in, into your wife or your other relationships that you had and so you started realizing well I can control this 
negative behavior by giving out a positive, and that obviously has a positive correlation and an upward spiral with other relationships that you have. So again, it's it's really facilitating, but also it's humility, but also taking ownership. So I think it's really interesting that I want to pivot a little bit in regards to uh, your investing career. Uh, like like I mentioned, you deployed over sixty million dollars over you know fourteen companies, uh, definitely in the VC world. I, I love the VC and the PE. I'm, I'm I'm in it, and I just it's so fun to see this. You focus heavily on the tech enabled health services. I'd love to just start with that. Um, why? What are you seeing there? Uh, is it very just, you know, very, very close to your heart in regards to just, you know, the ecosystem? Or are you just seeing bigger, just, you know, larger market potential uh, in regards to solving problems? Love to, uh, you know, have a 30,000 foot view of what are you were seeing there, Randall? Yeah, you know, it started. So when we were doing angel investing, um, a large portion of the deals we were looking at just happened to be healthcare related. Um, and I think that kind of just, Maybe that influenced me a little bit, but I think in the back of my mind, I also kept thinking like, you know, I, I, there's nothing better than doing well by doing good. And, you know, it doesn't get me up in the morning to like commercialize, you know, another way to check out Kim Kardashian's ass or something. So like the idea of like commercializing healthcare companies um, was appealing to me because again, I was still righteous. So it's like, let's, let's heal the body, let's heal the mind, let's help, you know, make healthcare a little bit more accessible or efficient or, you know, just, you know, a little bit better than it was yesterday um, so that people can live healthier lives. And so I like that idea, like the mission-driven investing, but I still am a greedy capitalist pig, so I still want to make money, so you're exactly right. Healthcare market is massive, um, and there's a lot of ways to make money in the healthcare market, so best of both worlds. You know, I like leveraging technology to make inherently inefficient things more efficient and the healthcare market is inherently inefficient and so um, it needs a lot of technology to help move it forward because it's you know 10 years behind private sector for the most part and so i like that um, and i knew that you know i wouldn't be you know i couldn't do anything that required an acronym at the end of my name because i didn't have those acronyms i didn't have the md i didn't have you know the nurse practitioner i didn't have you know the rn so you know i didn't do anything in biotech or pharma not because i didn't like it but because no one would trust me and i had no idea about that space anyways so i focused on technology because i'm like hey i can do that um and so it's just it's been a blast i love the idea of these complex systems and using technology to make them better. You know, I think the metaverse is a, is a marketing gimmick right now. It'll eventually come to fruition just like everything else, um, but we're way early. I mean, we're talking like a decade early. It's not gonna come as fast as people think it is. That Ready Player One experience, you're not, you know, we're close to that. Um, but I think it's gonna come uh, eventually. But right now, like, I don't wanna go hide in my house. Like, I think you saw it with COVID. People hate being locked in. Like, we're social animals. People, I don't believe people are trying to escape to a virtual world. I think people want to live in the real world. They just want a better real world experience. And so I love the idea of leveraging technology to enhance real world experiences. And that's not only what we did in healthcare, but it's also what we're doing at Funware. So with this being said in the healthcare, and I definitely see this, I've seen some interesting um, you know, services and products in the tech world where, uh, I mean, just a lot of physicians are able to you know, just be more productive because they're leveraging a lot of AI in regards to notes and the systems and, and even the way they do a lot of their booking, which is really incredible. Randall, when you look at an investment, um, obviously mm -hmm. you're, you gravitate a little bit more than VC, which is obviously pre-C, pre-Rev, Series A kind of, you know, kind of atmosphere in these startups. 
Randall, when you're looking at a company, um, obviously you have probably gotten pitched a lot. Definitely, if you've you know invested into you know multiple companies, there you would have to get you know pitched a lot. So you've seen a lot of different pitch decks. With that being said, how do you isolate the winners versus the losers? Because you are you don't have a lot of the KPIs in regards no. to the revenue. You don't have like maybe market penetration, market you know tailwind, anything like that. So you're kind of relying a little bit on maybe yeah. the the futuristic projections. So how do you approach uh, that conversation, that dialogue when you're looking at that pitch deck and that and that opportunity? Yeah, it's a great question, and this is something entrepreneurs have to remember. You know, for an entrepreneur, that one company, you have an N of one, you know, for those of you that aren't quants, an N is a data set. So an N, an N of one is you have one example of what you're talking about, and that is your company, and you believe it's going to change the world, and you are the one to do it, and you know, everybody should be focused on you and paying attention to you. Um, and to the VC, you're, and, you know, we have an N of 300, you know, you're, you're, you're the sixth person I met today, you know, so... I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but I just mean that in saying, like, you got to understand that you are not unique. Um, I know you think you are, but you're not. Now, you are. So um, it's kind of a, a two-phase comment. When I first meet you, you aren't unique. When I get to know you for the ones that are going to win, you are incredibly unique. And it's all about the person because you can't, you don't have those KPIs. So how do you stand out? Like, how do you differentiate yourself? You know, it's kind of like parenting. It's like, trust me, I'm doing this for your own good. Like the entrepreneurs, they're great. They're like little drug dealers. And every single one of them thinks that they're going to push their product and they're going to give you a little taste and you're going to get hooked. And you want that experience all the time. Um, and so, but I think a lot of people make a lot of mistakes um, in, in terms of like how they approach it. Sometimes they overvalue their company. Sometimes they don't do enough research. Sometimes they don't personalize the engagement with the VC. You know, if you're pitching a tech-enabled healthcare VC, a biotech company, you've missed the mark because that's not their investment thesis. And so, you know, I think it, it shows that you didn't do your research. So VCs are always, they have like this list, and this is why I'm glad I did it as an entrepreneur. There's always like, there's a hidden conversation going that entrepreneurs don't realize like it's stupid to ask a vc to sign an nda but every entrepreneur does it i get why they do it but it's ignorant to try to convince me to sign an nda i see too many companies i see too many entrepreneurs and basically i don't want to steal your idea and probably it's not that novel to begin with unless you're talking about some crazy chemical formula to replace coke it's just not um, so, but every entrepreneur is like, well, I can't pitch you then. Okay, then don't pitch me. Then don't come in. Like it just, so there, you have to really do a lot of groundwork, understand, you know, what, how should this pitch be? Um, how, how long should it be? How do I grab someone's attention? Don't read your slides. You know, you still should have a business plan, even though a VC is never going to read it. They just want to know that you did it. Um, you know, but I think the biggest thing for me was the walk away factor. Um, yeah, there's a, I was talking about this earlier this week and I won't say his name cause I think he's still a pretty active investor in the Valley and Silicon Valley. Um, but in kind of, you know, think about like invested in like Twitter kind of, you know, firm. Um, he said, you know, I invest in sociopaths. Like when I was, we were, we were syndicating a deal. He's like, man, I, I, I don't, I, it sounds weird, but I invest in people who are probably on the spectrum. They have mommy and daddy issues and they don't care about money. They, there's something, there's a big chip on their shoulder and it's all about the reckoning and these people will run through walls to win. And if you notice a lot of the very ultra successful people, 
are a little socially awkward or a little bit weird. And it's like, he's like, I look for that. Like, I don't want the polished Harvard grad with the, the, the pristine resume. I want the engineer who like doesn't shower and is eating Cheetos and doesn't even want to take the meeting and, you know, speaks four languages. And one of them is, you know, sign language. <laughs> it's like a why. I don't know. I just learned it. Like, you know, it's just like these just crazy cerebral men and women who just operate on a different RPM. They're the ones that change the world. And so he looks for that. And I might not go that far. Um, but I look for a walkaway factor. Like, I'll ask you, how much of your own money have you put in the deal? Um, and if the answer is none, you know, all right, did you get your parents into the deal? What about your best friend? Like, who will you, what relationship will you ruin if you walk away? Like, I want to know that you are all in. Um, I won't invest in a doctor who won't quit their practice. You know, doctors are great. They're, they understand healthcare really well. And they're like, yeah, I've got this company. All right, you're going to quit being a doctor? No. All right, then why should I invest in your company? You know, you're not all in. You know, I want all in. I want you to refinance your house, max out your credit cards, sell your, you know, parents 401k, you know, cash out your college, your kid's college fund. You know, maybe not that extreme. But I've seen people pitch that have done that. And you're like looking at them going, you have to win. And at least you can't walk away. And so that's a huge, huge kind of underwriting to, you know, how hard are you going to work at this? Whereas if you're just a couple cats off of Wall Street trying to play with the house's money, good on you. If you can play with the house's money, by all means do it. Mark Zuckerberg played with the house's money. By all means, if you were that good and you can get it, you should do it. But understand, I, you know, a lot of people will see that as a sign that you're not all in. That's an interesting thesis, and I like that because obviously in in the pre seed in the Series A, you know, you are in pre rev, you're really focusing on uh, you know that founder themselves, right? And so those are certain personality traits, some characteristics yep. that you are looking for that says, hey, what, I mean, how much are you bringing in? Because all, like you mentioned, I love that approach where you know they they're they're their back is against the wall. They got to move forward. There's no other. There's no. I mean, the bridges are burned, if you will. And also, I love that kind of characteristic trait in regards yep. to kind of a little on the spectrum of <laughs> daddy issues. I know that was a very interesting way, but yeah. I can see how there's you know validity behind that. Uh, Randall, I want to ask you in regards to because this is what I always find interesting is naturally in the VC game, like you mentioned, it is kind of okay. Hey, I'm going to go and invest in a lot, uh, a lot of my time, energy, and resources into each one of these individuals. Is maybe 300 companies, whatever it may be, and then some like just the numbers. Yeah. Uh, a third will go unicorn. Third will be like profitable. A third will just you know will, will go to zero and, and bankrupt and, and yeah. turn over. Um, with that being said. I want to talk about in the moment. You don't know which third is which, right? Where it's going to lay. But the only thing is, is hey, you know, you have to have those tough conversations sometimes. You had a burn rate. And I would imagine you have these tough conversations with the founders. And I just want to ask, like, how, how do you approach that? What does that look like in regards to maybe they're not hitting the, the hurdles uh, or those, those KPIs that they should be hitting? Maybe they've been doing a lot of burn rate. Maybe that hasn't been a go-to-market strategy. Maybe they're not, you know, uh, even a positive, whatever it may be, that they're like, okay, there's something going on here. We've spent a lot of money to you. Oh, what's going on and having that conversation. And at some point you have to obviously cut the umbilical cord and say, well, we're, we're no longer going to put our time, energy, and resources. We're going to go ahead and allocate our time and energy onto something that's obviously producing, developing, creating. What does that conversation look like and how with those red flags and green flags, are you identifying that um, uh, to, to ensure that you are uh, allocating your resources and time toward obviously the winners? Yeah. Um, 
It's, it's a great, great question. No one's ever asked that before. I mean, I think people have talked about it before, but I've never talked about it on a, on a podcast before, so I'm glad you asked it. Um, and this is, this is probably why, you know, I, see, I fell into being an investor for about a decade. That's all I did. Um, but it wasn't my, my calling, my passion. It's not what I was doing. I was doing it to be able to prepare to be an entrepreneur. Because I don't think I'm a good um, investor because of that. I don't have the ability to cut an umbilical cord if I've made a commitment to you. And I think you need that as an investor. Um, and so for all of my investments, I kind of, you know, while I was in that seat as an investor, you know, we were going to fight to the bitter end. And, and I did allocate my time to all of my children, you know, relatively equally. Um, not all of them were, you know, successful, you know, and, and it's not even a third. It's like, you know, one, one or two might win out of ten and, you know, seven or eight are kind of the living dead. They're, they're doing a, enough to kind of keep going, um, but they're not really going on a trajectory that you want. Um, but if they need me, I'm still there and I'm still going to help. Um, and so, you know, my cutting of the umbilical cord was really transitioning to funware um, and, and having this be my all in. I'm no longer, you know, actively in, investing. Um, and so, you know, they are, I'm an empty nester when it comes to investing. You know, they are now on their own and they have other investors. And I always try to syndicate deals because I like having multiple perspectives and multiple wallets. Um, so they still have support. And if they call, I will absolutely answer and be there for them. Um, but, you know, when I was investing, I spent a lot of time. We were very hands on and very you know, active and very involved. And it was like, let's, you know, and, and it, I, I don't I don't think it's like personally, I did not own enough of the company to provide as much of the value as I was providing. And that's what happens when you invest seed. And a lot of investors need to understand this. When you invest seed, you will likely, you know, everyone wants to invest $25,000 into Uber and have it turn into $25 million. That's very rare. More often than not, you invest in a seed round, and then later on, the investors, you don't hit those KPIs, and later investors actually do down rounds or flat rounds, and you have all this thing called dilution that occurs, and all you did all this work to keep the company alive and figure out its business model and get its first customer and do all these things, but you only invested, you know, a million, two million, three million. The people who really won came in after you proved all the proof points and after you minimized all the risk, they come in with a you know $20 million Series B and a $100 million Series C and then take it public and you just get diluted down to where it's not as meaningful as you would think. You really need to own you know, 30, 40% of it to manage that dilution as you have those additional funding rounds. Um, and if you don't, you know, it's not worth it. So, I mean, I, I did you know, multiple times look you know, at my partners and say, look, we don't own enough of this company to be doing this kind of work. Like we're, we are, we're, we're basically co-founders of these seed level companies, yet we only own 10% of the company. It's not worth it. And so um, I was not always, I wasn't able to make that call, you know, in my, my heart to like, just say, you know what, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I'm just not who I am. Um, so I love being like in a company now, one team, one fight, all in, no safety net, you know, all gas, no quit. Let's get it on. I love that approach. I love what you say in there. And it's it's actually really cool because like you mentioned, there are some a lot of um, investors that are very easy and quick to to cut that umbilical cord. But also I like what you mentioned. I think that you brought up a really good point and um, which is need to be said. A lot of people are not aware of the ride, what that looks like in regards to dilution. And like you mentioned, we see these unicorns, we see all that fun stuff, but we never actually see the longer term. It's really 
realizing, oh, wait a minute, what's going on here? Uh, Randall, I really appreciate you being on here. I know we could riff on this yeah. quite a bit. Uh, I just, uh, I love the, the the mindset that you bring, but also just the awareness of your own your, your own behaviors, that you're able to kind of embrace that and obviously change that and obviously adjust and, and enjoy that journey of that. And I think that's um, that's that's very um very appropriate in the way you you you, you present yourself and, and the authenticity you share today. For those that want to reach out to you, that want to be part of what you got going on, maybe just you know consume more of your content, maybe engage with you know the activities that you've got going on. How do they reach out to you, my man? Yeah, I'm easy to find. So it's it's Randall Crowder, um, two L's. Uh, so Randall Crowder uh, on Instagram, Randall Crowder on LinkedIn, uh, pretty much the same on everything. Uh, I have Randall Crowder on Twitter. Uh, but I can't remember my password, so for now it's just Crowder Official um, on Twitter. And one of these days, maybe I'll figure out how to unlock that account again, but probably not. Um, and then you can go to funware.com, uh, so the ph ph ecom uh, and learn all the things we're doing at Funware, which is super cool. Um, and then if you want to trade it, it's actually a public company, so P-H-U-N on uh, NASDAQ. So it's uh, honestly a real pleasure to, to be on here. I love your energy. I love what you're doing with your podcast. This has been a, a treat for me. And we'll have to do a, a part two because I feel like we could talk for a, a long time about a lot of topics. We didn't even talk about religion. Don't even start <laughs> I love it. Well, we'll definitely have to riff on a lot of these big subjects, man. And maybe we have the uh, might do a two-hour podcast. But yeah, I appreciate you being on here big time. Guys, those links are in the description below. So make sure you stop what you're doing and consume this content. He's got a lot of good resources out there as well as Funware. Uh, we didn't dive into too much of that company, but it's really actually really excited what they've got going on. Guys, that is the angel investor, the uh, my friend, the managing partner at Incredible Venture Companies, uh, chief operating officer at Funware, the one and only Randall Crowder. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis podcast. Until next time, be uncommon if you can.